The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Mr. Lynn Clarkson. Mr. Clarkson serves as president of Clarkson Grain and managing director of Clarkson Soy Products. Clarkson Grain supplies selected organic and conventional grains and oilseeds to food processors. Most importantly, and why I was so interested in interviewing Mr. Clarkson today, is that he serves on USDA's AC21 committee, which addresses the snarly issue of agricultural coexistence in a time of biotechnology. Mr. Clarkson, welcome. Thank you. Well, I had the opportunity to listen to an e-organic webinar, and I just want to let our listeners know that the e-organic webinar series are truly excellent in giving people a good understanding of of agriculture and some of the challenges that we as consumers and eaters face. And your presentation was, How Can Organic, Non-GMO, and GMO Crops Coexist? And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. So let's just step back, and I want to just let our listeners know that you actually have degrees in political science. You're also an attorney, but you grew up on a farm in central Illinois. How did you become active in working with grain trading? Well, as a child growing up, I associated farming with slave labor. (laughs) Right. Largely because of the way my father employed me, and I thought it would be good to get away from agriculture. And that was followed by a number of years in college, graduate school, U.S. Navy. And I returned to the farm, started asking questions that I failed to ask as a child about how we marketed grain off of our family farms. That led to starting a company to handle direct delivery. Most farms can now hold all of their annual production on farm. They don't need commercial storage. And they can deliver directly from the farm to processors or end users or exporters. So I put together a company that would charge farmers only for the cost of handling the marketing, not for the unnecessary overhead of having an infrastructure to connect them to the markets because farmers already paid for that. Mm -hmm. So that led to a direct delivery marketing system that functioned all over the state of Illinois. Then roughly 10 years after that, I started looking for ways to avoid standing on the interstate with Cargill, Continental, Bungie, Dreyfus, Archer Daniels, who have tremendous amounts of capital and move tremendous quantities of grain, and started looking at raising food crops. Took on business with some Japanese companies, delivering to them selected varieties of soybeans to use for making tofu, miso, soy milk, soy sauce. That led to somebody coming and asking if we would assist in putting together some corn. And we managed to put together a shipload of white corn going to a foreign buyer. When it arrived at the foreign buyers, the buyer sent a telegram and said, this is the finest corn I've ever received from the United States. How did you do it? Well, in the world of agriculture, most farmers and others are used to never getting a compliment. If it's a farmer going to an elevator, he always wants to say, well, I can go someplace else if you don't please me. If it's a buyer, they normally say, you're lucky I took your material Hmm. because it's not really what I want. So a compliment was something rare in the world of agriculture. And most of us like to be 
rewarded by knowing that what we do, people appreciate. So there was no real secret to getting good corn. We just minimized the handling. A typical kernel of corn between the United States a field in the Midwest and a buyer in Tokyo might be vertically lifted and dropped a total of something like 1,600 feet. We reduced that to less than 200 feet in the various steps in getting it overseas. So the buyers liked that. I appreciated the compliment. And then we started moving this company into addressing more and more food-grade needs of processors. So we're behind a lot of tortillas, a lot of tortilla chips, a lot of soy foods, and we enjoy those relationships. So how many choices do farmers in your region have in terms of bringing their grain to a buyer? Are you one of many? Yes. The typical farmer will have two or three buyers within a 20-mile radius. But if he wants to focus on food-grade corn, the noise in the background yeah. is the Norfolk Southern Mainline Rail to the East Coast to Norfolk. And my office sits right next to it, so it sometimes sounds like a train is coming right through the office. If the farmer wants to raise for a specialty market, then his choices of market become somewhat more restricted. There aren't that many people that prepare grain for cooking at uh, food processors. And then if the farmer wants to raise organic, he has even fewer choices because there's just not a, not a density of production, a density of movement to justify buyers on every corner. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, am, as a registered dietitian, I have become very interested in the connection between how we produce our food and how that affects public health. And so personally, I prefer to purchase certified organic products simply because I don't think we've had the long-term public health and environmental testing that is needed for my philosophical position on food safety. And you tell an interesting story in your webinar, and I wanted to share it with our listeners, and it has to do with your taking a tour of a Monsanto plant with a gentleman from Japan. And the gentleman from Japan says, well, how long have you been doing the research on GMOs? And the researcher at Monsanto says, well, about 16 years, if I'm recalling correctly. And the Japanese gentleman looks at his watch and says, "Mm, in our country, we wait a generation. That would be 30 years. Call me back after then. Tell me about the precautionary principle and your perspectives in dealing with EU and Japanese countries versus the American model. Well, what you just mentioned is an accurate retelling of uh, that experience at Monsanto. And the gentleman who responded that way is the president of one of the very large food cooperatives around the Tokyo metropolitan area. Um, His company delivers to quite a few millions of people, and he's very concerned about what goes into his food supply system. And what he was articulating is the precautionary principle. If I don't know that it works, then I don't want to immediately start using it. Uh, many folks in the United States make fun of the Europeans and the and a number of Asian countries for articulating a precautionary principle because we say, well, under our testing, everything's fine. There can't be a problem. What's taking you so long? Why are you so conservative about this? Well, they're very conservative because many of the dangers we have in our food system are subtle, and you're not going to know about them until they've had a chance to accumulate. Those of us in the ag community were told that uh, alder and DDT, various chemicals that first came out in the 50s and 60s, would be fine and they would disappear from our environment. Well, today we've removed something like 70% of the wells in the state of Illinois from being used directly for drinking supply because of pesticide contamination. 
and many of those chemicals are still there in our soil. So the Japanese and others are quite content for the U.S. population to be their test bed, and they want to see what we look like, our children look like, our grandchildren look like, what our health profiles look like one generation or so down the road. Those people might become the best client for some of Monsanto's products if they feel comfortable, but there's a certain amount of waiting time that they regard as essential. And since my job is to keep clients happy, and my client, which is the client of most American farmers, says, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to what you're doing. I just want to wait and be doubly sure before I accept it. Seems like a reasonable position to me. Yeah, and you raise a very good point about the DDT issue, and you bring that up in the webinar as well, and the wells in Illinois. The problem is, in public health, we have been seeing changes over the past couple of decades, but it's very hard to point, you know, a finger at the smoking gun. So I totally agree with your comment that there are subtle differences, and it's very difficult to prove cause and effect, but my philosophy is always take the precautionary principle and certainly when there's a, when there's children's health involved. So now I want to know, we've Excuse got me, some... I, I might, yes. Let me suggest one other thing to you. To the overseas buyer or a buyer in the United States, what is the benefit to them of taking the risk of something new? Mm-hmm. There's a clear benefit from Monsanto to the farmer in changing his pesticide application, but the buyer is being asked to accept something with an unknown risk and no particular benefit to it. That's mm-hmm. a tough that's, that's a tough choice, and it's easy for a buyer to say, uh, I'm going to wait now. Mm-hmm. Well, and the marketing is quite effective. You know, I was just in Washington, D.C., and I've noticed the several times that I've been to D.C. in the past several years, the advertising, which is strangely not in the St. Louis airport, but it is in the Washington, D.C. airport. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? I do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's promoting the virtues of Monsanto in increasing yields in light of increased population and climate change. And yet we have to get back to the consumer again. And what does the consumer want? Well, certainly we want farmers to be profitable. We care about them. They are growing food for us. But at the same time, most consumers that I interact with really do want some sort of guarantee that their food is going to be safe and not harm their families. So you mentioned in the webinar this idea of contamination. And it's very difficult to, I mean, pollen blows, the wind blows, There's there are bird carriers, we know how things get pollinated. And it's very difficult to have containment. And so the market now, if, if a product is labeled as organic or GMO-free, there is actually a tolerance level of 0.9%. Is that correct? Yes. In general, that is not a statutory limit. There's no rule saying that. It has become an accepted standard among food companies in the United States. It is the accepted standard among European buyers because it's a level at which you have, if you're above that level, you have to label and it's an accepted unofficial standard among food companies in Japan. The Japanese official standard is 5% of GMO presence before you'd have the label, but the unofficial among the food companies that my company deal with is 0.9. None of them want to be as liberal as the Japanese government. They want to be more conservative in the interest of protecting their clients. Now, you mentioned that you test every load of grain that comes to your facility. Are you Are you rejecting more grain today 
Yes, we do, but almost all the grain that arrives at our facilities has been contracted with us prior to planting. And the farmers understand that the premiums are based on their delivering to us corn, soybeans with less than 0.9% GMO. Because of that, farmers take a nice job of trying to be careful and harvest buffer rows, and they send those to a, to a commodity market, just a normal commercial market, before they bring us material. So in reality, we are rejecting, but we don't have many rejections. We're rejecting maybe one load of soybeans in every 200, and we're rejecting someplace around two or three loads of corn per 100. Mm-hmm. That's got to be tough for the farmer, and clearly the farmer's concern is preventing contamination, and they have to go through rigors to protect their, their organic crop. But whose responsibility is it if their crop becomes contaminated? Well, that's an interesting political policy question. To date, we don't have clarifying legal court cases on that, nor do we have a statement from the USDA, nor do we have agreement from the players in the field, the trade associations that represent farmers or farmers themselves. In most cases, to date, the costs of failure to comply with the cost of having what in politically correct speak one would call adventitious presence from GMO in your crop falls to the farmer who has been damaged. That, I think, that requires additional policy looks by the United States because of changes in the GMO capabilities uh, that we're seeing being introduced right now. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem fair to me. Well, there are a lot of people that agree with you that it's not fair. But when you sit down with a cross-section of American agriculture, uh, you run a pretty broad gamut. You run from people that think that farmer A has the right to raise anything that he wishes on his farm, and his neighbor, farmer B, is just out of luck if that causes a problem. At uh, the other end of the extreme, you have folks saying farmer A has no right to damage the crop or the markets of his neighbor, Farmer B. And so much of the challenge of coexistence comes into addressing what a reasonable tolerance level is between those two points and how we get there. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lynn Clarkson. He serves as president of Clarkson Grain and managing director of Clarkson Soy Products. He is based in central Illinois, and he is a member of USDA's AC21 committee, which has been charged to address the issues of agricultural coexistence in a time of biotechnology. And I just want to let our listeners know you used a very interesting term called adventitious presence, which is political speech for unwanted GMO contamination, correct? Yes, it's even broader than that, but yes, it certainly fits the definition, yes. Okay. So let's talk about a specific kind of corn now, because I think this raises a marvelous opportunity for us to really see the the full potential of contamination and some of the problems that can result. You mentioned a type of corn called amylase corn. It was developed by Syngenta, and it is used predominantly in the corn ethanol industry. And the beauty of this corn, from an ethanol producer standpoint, is that it's genetically engineered to contain the amylase enzyme, which breaks down cornstarch. However, if a food producer wants corn grain that is going to produce corn tortillas or corn chips, 
that cornstarch is a very critical component of the operation. So you now are in a difficult position because you're the grain buyer. And you've got, you've got the food manufacturers at your door saying, not only do we want consistent grain, and we want organic grain for consumers like myself, and you're facing a dilemma in that you can't even test for this because the level of presence is so minute that it can contaminate the workings of the food production equipment, but you can't test for it in your operation. You're right. This is an exponential increase in the challenge of delivering to clients what they want. This is the first really seriously challenging functional GMO trait, in that a trait has been added to corn that changes the function of the corn. And one part of this corn per 10,000 parts of any other corn ruins the other corn for use in making corn grits, which would be corn flakes that go into people's cereal all across the country. Uh, roughly 0.25% presence will ruin any other corn for alkaline milling. Now, alkaline milling is what's used to make tortillas and tortilla chips. The testing that we do on farmers has to be fairly quick because they're bringing us trucks that need to return to their field or need to return to their bin. The strip test that we use for cultural GMO traits, such as Roundup Ready and the BT, those allow us to do a test and have results back in roughly 10 to 15 minutes, and that's acceptable. But we cannot buy those kind of tests for for one part in 10,000. The lowest those things will record is roughly 40 parts in 10,000. So we could be seeing corn coming in through our testing protocols that's beneath the level of sensitivity to tests, but will cause an enormous problem for a client. So we're looking at problems being delivered along the supply chain that we won't even know there are problems until they make trouble in somebody's milling plant or in your box of cereal. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for us. We could find the presence of this by doing a PCR test, which is a DNA test, but those tests frequently take several days to uh, arrange, get the results from, and they cost several hundred dollars. So this is a very serious issue. The standard that we were talking about, the 0.9, requires, in general, there are local changes, but in general requires 100 feet of separation between a GMO field and a non-GMO field for corn. On soybeans, probably 15 feet would be adequate. But if we get down to levels of one part in 10,000, 0.01%, now I need someplace over one-half mile of separation. And since the average dimension of a Midwestern field is one-half mile by one-half mile, this becomes a potentially impossible task for many farmers. This is a serious problem. Yes, it is. And I suspect that your credibility and accountability is at risk as well because the food producers who are buying grain from you, if they don't get the product that they're wanting, there goes your reputation as well. It does. And most people who are making tortillas or, let's say, grits are sheeting material as part of the cooking. And if the amylase enzyme is active, then the stuff won't machine right. It won't sheet right. When it goes into a box, the company that's doing it won't know that the temperature and moisture stability of their starch product hasn't been affected, and they won't know what the 
your box of cornflakes is going to look like. You may open it and find just kind of mush at the bottom. And that strikes great concern in part of the North American Millers Association. They took a public position against approval of this corn back in 2011. They opposed it, as did the Grocery Manufacturers Association, as did the U.S. Grain Export Council. Every one of those associations is supportive of GMOs. They can't be dismissed as being enemies of GMO, but they're enemies of this GMO. They don't like it and thought it was a mistake to have it approved. How did it get approved? Well, that's something of a puzzle. Um, Syngenta was strongly supporting it because they'd invested for years. The ethanol industry strongly supported it because, in fact, it's wonderful for the ethanol industry. They don't have to buy enzymes. This comes pre-enzymed. The U.S. regulatory structure makes it clear that the USDA has the right to deny approval to new introductions that damage people quickly because nobody seems to be running long-term studies. Right. Damages animals quickly. Again, I don't know that we're doing good jobs in long-term studies. Or three, damages the environment, again, quickly. If it meets all those criteria, then according to some folks who interpret the rules, the USDA must approve it. But amylase corn met almost every definition that we have for a weed and could have been rejected in those terms. But the USDA did not feel comfortable rejecting it in those terms. So if the USDA looks at me and says, we don't have the authority to do this, I would say as a community, we should give them the authority to put into the regulatory mix consideration of what happens to our markets, what happens to folks who are confident or lack of, or going to lack confidence in the U.S. as a supplier of grain that does what they, they, the client, want it to do. So we may need a regulatory change for this, but there is an argument the USDA already has the authority, just didn't want to broaden it to use it against the opposition of the biotech folks who were treating every GMO as if it were as if it should be approved. Hmm. You know, from a consumer perspective, and clearly I'm not uh, as aware of all the politics that go on in Washington, D.C., but as a consumer and someone who teaches consumers how to eat well, it seems to me like our regulatory bodies are not functioning in the public's best interest. And I don't know what to do about it. Well... There are a lot of people inside the government, a lot of people outside the government are trying to adjust to the situation. Uh, frankly, the Secretary of Ag, I think, uh, put together a credible group of people. There is a tremendous amount of disagreement among them at the AC21 as to what should be done. There's tremendous value conflict. But the Secretary of Ag put together a very broad-based sample of uh, the players in the world of uh, agriculture. I think he did a nice job in covering almost every interest I know of that's there and asked us to hammer it out and say, please, don't leave here with the same results as the U.S. Congress has been giving us. Show us that we can find compromises here that achieve some uh, some good progress. So I know the USDA is, is pushing for that. I know various senators and various congressmen are. But we've left some holes in the system that could cause problems. And I do not. I'm not taking this opportunity to be critical of GMOs. I'm taking the opportunity to say we need to do a better job of, if you want to raise GMO, fine, just don't put your neighbor who's trying to raise an organic crop in the position of having to accept your drift. Absolutely. And as a consumer, 
I am concerned that my choices are actually dwindling in the marketplace, and I worry that one day I won't have the freedom to choose a product that is marginally contaminated, that one day perhaps it will all be contaminated. Well, roughly 90% of the corn right now raised across the United States, roughly 90 million acres of corn, roughly 90% of that is GMO. Yeah. And of that, the amylase currently represents less than 1%. And it, it currently is not a huge commercial issue, but it is most likely to become, and I don't know just when it will become, whether it will be this year, next year, or the year after, but it will become a serious issue. My company is already backing away from buying from anybody that's within a few miles of where we know there are plantings of amylase corn. There are a number of uh, grocery store chains and food processors that have uh, taken a look at the disputes across our country about labeling GMO. Mm -hmm. Many of the food companies have said, look, um, why are we in this fight? It's not our fight. Our job is to please our clients. Uh, The seed companies haven't done a a complete job at selling their product out here. So we're going to quit being opposed to labeling, and we're going to go with labeling. So you've got Whole Foods making their announcement. Uh, you have other international companies that seem to be moving in the direction of labeling to try and give choices. But if you tell me you want to be absolutely free of these things, you've lost that today. Mm-hmm. I cannot look at you in, in good faith and say we can have zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe it's possible. But we can deliver less than 09 And if there were markers, tracers placed with GMO traits that made it easy for us to find them, then we could do a better job of minimizing the presence of any of this stuff in clients who wanted to avoid it. But it is becoming an increasingly difficult problem for us, especially with the introduction of these functional traits that impact things at a very, very subtle level. Will labeling help drive agriculture away from using GMO crops, do you think? No, I think GMO crops have a long future of um, different traits being differentially beneficial. What I think it will do is uh, boost and secure the market and set up some definitions which will make the market uh, function better, help the market function better about what non-GMO means. Just so you know, typically this year, we are paying, we, I mean the community in general, the ag community, for non-GMO soybeans, we're typically paying a premium of about $2 a bushel. If beans are selling for roughly $14, $15 a bushel a day, commodity beans, we're paying roughly a a 14% premium to avoid GMOs. And we have significant markets for those, but they're not big enough to absorb every bean in the United States. On corn, we're paying, typically paying a premium of about 70 cents, someplace between 60 and 70 cents a bushel premium. We're paying about a 10 or 12% premium to achieve non-GMO corn. There's a market for that. There's a lot of concern about whether that market's growing or decreasing. The Japanese market is probably the largest market sensitive to GMO issues that the U.S. serves. But there's increasing concern here in the United States and increasing demand for non-GMO here. We're going to have to leave it at that, Mr. Clarkson. I'm sorry our time is up. I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I want to remind our listeners that they can go to the eOrganic website. And your webinar is terrific. It covers this and so much more. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Mr. Lynn Clarkson. He is president of Clarkson Grain and managing director of Clarkson Soy Products. 
He is also on USDA's AC21 committee addressing issues of agricultural coexistence in a time of biotechnology. Food Sooth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, and thank you so much, Mr. Clarkson, for this terrific conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for your attention to the issues.